Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries. Welcome to Jewish Awareness Podcast, a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. On Friday nights at our headquarters, we host a Bible study. Generally, we do verse-by-verse studies of different books of the Bible. Through the years, these studies have looked at the books of Isaiah, Ezekiel, John, and Hebrews. At times, we will have studies devoted to Jewish cultural events or issues relating to Israel and prophecy. These studies can be viewed live through the JAM Facebook live stream platform on Fridays. If you have questions or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org. Email us at office at jewishawareness.org or call us at 919-275-4477. This information will be repeated at the end of the podcast. Enjoy the Bible study. Now this chapter, and we're just going to look at the first four verses tonight. Uh, This chapter brings us to what the writer of Hebrews previously expressed a desire to do, which was to develop Messiah being a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Remember what it said back in Hebrews 5, 10, 11? Uh, Called of God, speaking of the Messiah, speaking of Jesus, called of God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek of whom we have many things to say, hard to be understood, not uttered, but hard to be understood, seeing ye are dull of hearing. And the dull of hearing are professing believers in Jesus. They weren't truly saved. So he gives them a warning. They need to come to true faith. Well, he's done that, chapter 6. He now goes back to what he wanted to do all the way back in chapter 5. and the end of chapter 6, he talks about Melchizedek. So he's now going to develop the uh, priesthood uh, after the order of Melchizedek, speaking ultimately of Jesus and his priesthood in uh, pretty much great detail. So obviously now he's not addressing those who are professing believers He's addressing true believers. You can, you can grasp it. You can understand it. You've got the spiritual ability to understand what I'm speaking about. Now, <clears throat> the first four int- verses here introduce us to Melchizedek. He's mentioned only twice in the earlier scripture, in other words, in the Old Testament. And he's mentioned in Genesis chapter 14 and 18 through 20, where we are told this, in Melchizedek, king of Salem brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the most high God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the most high God, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the most high God, which had delivered thine enemies into your hand, and he gave him tithes of all. So there's not a lot of information about Melchizedek in the Genesis account. And uh, some uh, fanciful uh, interpreters 
have really run amok with that first phrase that the king of Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine. And you can just imagine. Well, this is communion. This is the Lord's table. I mean, we have wine, we have bread. Let's just celebrate the Lord. You know, well, as I say, they run amok with imagination. Uh, it has nothing to do with communion. It has nothing to do with the Lord's table. It has nothing to do with Passover. Uh, none of this was introduced at this point in history. Uh, so we shouldn't read into it um, that type of thing, which some do. So the, the, the key that I want us to see here in this introduction, and, and <clears throat> Melchizedek is a king and a priest. He's the king of Salem, verse 18, and he's the priest of the Most High God, El Elyon. So he's the king and he's a priest. Now, in Psalm 110, in the first four verses, we are again introduced to Melchizedek only with a phrase. Uh, this psalm speaks of Jesus. This psalm speaks of uh, the anointed one of Israel. Starts in verse 1, The Lord said unto my Lord, David is speaking, it's a psalm of David, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Now we've looked at this before. David is the king of Israel. He is in the highest human office. Humanly speaking, there is no one higher in authority than David, humanly speaking. But Israel being a theocracy, meaning uh, that God was their king, he was the ruler of the nation, he was over the king, whoever the king might be, whether it be David, whether it be another king that would come to the throne, God was the ultimate ruler authority in Israel. And so in this Psalm of David now, who is the ultimate human authority, David said, the Lord said unto my Lord, Adon. So David speaking, humanly speaking, who is the only authority, master, ruler, Lord that David would, ha would have? Not humanly speaking, but who, who is the only one over David? God. So God said unto my God. We've looked at this in light of the plurality and unity of the Godhead. <coughs> Ultimately, that plurality and unity is a triunity. But here we only have two uh, mentions of God. Jehovah said unto David's God. So this doesn't teach the triune God. It teaches a plurality and unity of God. <coughs> Sith out my right hand, God says unto David's God, who is the Messiah, until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. When will Jehovah God, the Father, send the rod of, this, of David's God, who is the Messiah, Jesus, when will he send him in strength out of Zion? Second coming. Is that what I heard with those voices, I hope? Not first coming, second coming. When he comes the second time, Jesus, he's coming with a rod of iron. He's coming in strength. And so, I'm going to send you... Uh, 
and your rod of strength, and you're going to rule in the midst of your enemies. In other words, they will be subdued at that point. Thy people, the Jewish people, shall be willing in the day of your power. See, up to this point in history, and this point right here in this verse is the end of the tribulation period, the response of the Jewish people to Jesus has always been, uh-uh. I mean, I'm talking generally now. Forget it. He's not for us. But they will be willing in the day of his power. And the whole nation will ultimately accept him as their Savior, Messiah. In the beauties of holiness, from the womb in the morning, thou was the dew of thy youth. And it's just, it's just capturing some of the characteristics of the Messiah. He is in the beauty of holiness. From the beginning of him coming into the world, you have the dew of your youth. And then verse 4 comes to the point about Melchizedek. The Lord has sworn and will not repent. Thou, Jesus, Messiah, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So we don't learn anything new in, in a sense here other than that the Messiah, Jesus, will ultimately be a priest after the order of Melchizedek forever. For eternity. Because we, we know that Melchizedek was in the office of a priest. We know that from Genesis 14. So, what do we learn from this passage about the Messiah? The same thing that we essentially learned that I wanted to bring out in Genesis 14, that the Messiah, who is king and Lord, but he's king, is a priest as well. A priest after the order of Melchizedek. So you have these two offices that are coupled together. Uh, you find it back in Genesis 14. You find it here in Psalm 110. Now, that brings us to the first three verses of Hebrews chapter uh, 7. <clears throat> and I repeat these verses later on. But regardless, look at the first three verses. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abides a priest continually. Now, the identification of Melchizedek, and I have put down four different interpretations or identifications of who Melchizedek is. There are more. Some of them are so way out, it's not really even, and I think some of these are way out too. But there are no less than four identifications of who is Melchizedek. Well, the Jewish view of Melchizedek is that he is Shem. Remember Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the sons, okay? That he's Shem. 
Now this comes from the Chabad website. Chabad is the ultra-Orthodox Hasidic group. And they say this, the ancient Targumim, the Aramaic interpretive translations, so it's, it's, a, it's, a para, it's a paraphrase. It's an interpretive translation. So it's a paraphrase of the word of God. Identify Melchizedek as Shem, son of Noah. Shem was one of the links in the chain who transmitted the godly traditions that originated with Adam. These traditions were carefully hand, handed down from generation to generation. And Shem, who headed an academy, I guess it was the Shemdemi, Shem anyway, what, I don't know what the name of it was, was a key conductor of these teachings. The Midrash tells us that he was so perfect and so spiritually advanced that he was born circumcised. Now, sometimes Jewish interpret you know, are very fanciful. Um, anyway, so why did the priesthood pass from him to Abraham's children? Because if it was initially with Shem, who they say was Melchizedek, why did it eventually go to Abraham and his children, and specifically his grandson, Levi? Well, I guess it would not even be as good. It would be his... Um, Great-grandson, I guess. So, anyway, um, so why did it pass down? The Talmud explains that this happened as a result of his having blessed Abraham before blessing God in the verse above. That's going back to Genesis chapter 14. Uh, and he blessed him, and he said, Blessed be Abraham of the Most High God. And verse 20, then he blessed the Most High God. Hey, you, you messed up, Melchizedek, Shem. You should have blessed God first, and then Abraham because you got it reversed, what ended up happening is that the priesthood would be removed from you. It's reflected in the only other place in Scripture where Melchizedek is mentioned. I'm reading again now in Psalm 110, verse 4, where we read, You are a priest forever because of the speech of Melchizedek. Now, I don't understand how they get speech out of the Hebrew word that's used here, but regardless. That's how they interpret it. Because of Melchizedek's ill-chosen speech, the priesthood was taken from him and given to the seed of Abraham forever. So, Jewish belief now on Psalm 110 is that David is the priest after the word of Melchizedek in Psalm 110, verse 4. Now, definition of after the order of Melchizedek. The definition of that Hebrew word, just pulled, pulled it off of a uh, lexicon, is a reason, a suit, or a style. It's a cause, an end, an estate, an order, regard. Uh, I don't know where they get word from. But, but I think it's kind of read back into the understanding. Melchizedek didn't speak correctly. In his speech, he first blessed Abraham. Secondarily, he blessed God. Because of that ill-advised speech, word that he gave, he lost that. And so when they come to Psalm 110, verse 4, uh, what they then say is that the Lord is sworn, will not repent, thou art a priest forever after the word of Melchizedek. Because of what Melchizedek said, there's a, there's a new priesthood that's coming. Now, 
what they've got to deal with, meaning the, the Orthodox, the Jewish people who hold to this then, how is David a priest? When did David become a priest? You know, he never was a priest. He was a king. Uh, and, and so they run into another problem there, but that's a whole other thing. Anyway, that's the Jewish view. Melchizedek is Shem. It's wrong. It's, it's wrong. Okay, turn over on the back of the page. A second view is that Melchizedek is a celestial being, perhaps an angel, who took on human form. The Bible Knowledge Commentary, which was produced by Dallas Theological Seminary, says this, It seems more natural that the author meant that Melchizedek belonged to an order in which there was no end to the priesthood of those engaged in it. He later said in 7.8, that's Hebrews 7.8, that Melchizedek is declared to be living. If this is correct, Melchizedek may have been an angelic being who reigned for a time at Salem, in other words, Jerusalem. If so, the statement that he was without beginning of days would not mean that he was eternal, but simply that he had a pre-temporal origin. In other words, before time was brought into existence, the angelic being was there, and so he had a pre-temporal uh, existence. It goes on. Nor would this concept of uh, Melchizedek as an angel elevate him to the same level as God's son. Since the author painstakingly asserted the son's superiority to the angels in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 5 through 14. <clears throat> there is evidence that at Qumran, Melchizedek was regarded as an angelic personage. If this is the case in Hebrews, and the Son of God is the high priest in, the, in, in an order in which Melchizedek is simply a priest, but Melchizedek, in this understanding, is an angelic being. And there's a large quote I had, I took it out, uh, I figured one quote was enough about the Qumran quote that, yes, that Melchizedek was an angelic being. That's another view. Now, I think the first two views are wrong. Um, actually, you know, when, when, you, when, you, when, when, you're, when you're teaching, you always put the wrong views first, and then you put the correct view last. So the first three, three views are, first three views, I believe, are wrong. So what's the third view? And this is, a, this is a very popular view. Uh, it's a theophany. Now, you know what a theophany is? We've looked at theophanies before. Theo is the Greek word for God. And uh, 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 let me, it would be a epiphany. Uh, 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 how am I? Epiphany. Thank you. An epiphany. What's an epiphany? It's, a, it's, a, it's an appearance. It's a manifestation. And so if you have a theophany, you have a God appearing in human form. And it is almost universally accepted by Bible teachers that a theophany is also always a Christophany, Christophany. In other words, whenever was God appearing in human form, it was not the Father, it was not the Holy Spirit, it was the Son, it was a Christophany appearing in human form. 
So a theophany and a Christophany would be the same thing then, in essence. That's a very common view of this passage. Um, I quote Henry Morris, Defender's Study Bible. He says, the usual interpretation is that he, Melchizedek, was made into a type of Christ. Since, quote, as a king of righteousness, meaning Melchizedek, and king of peace, meaning of Salem, he appears and leaves the record suddenly, with no mention of either ancestry or death. It seems better to take the words literally, in which case they could be applicable to Christ himself. Appearing here to Abram in a theophany, this would also solve the problem of how such a godly king and priest as Melchizedek could be ruling a city in such an ungodly land as Canaan, and why if he did, Abraham would have, Abram would have no other contact with him. The fact that he was like unto the Son of God, Hebrews 7.3, accords with one of Christ's pre-incarnate appearances. In other words, before he came into the world, through the incarnation, through Mary, a pre-incarnate appearance, which would be a theophany or a Christophany, he says it uh, jives with this. Uh, at his human birth, he became the incarnate Son of God forever. Melchizedek was also said to be a man, Hebrews 7, 4. But the same is true in the case of other theophanies, one of which was likewise manifested to Abram in Genesis 18 and 19, where three men appeared to Abram. Two of them were angels, one was God himself, but they appeared to Abram, Abraham then in the form of a man. So one of the, 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 one of the more acceptable views of who is Melchizedek is that it's a theophany. It was Jesus Christ who just appeared to Abram as the king of Salem, as the priest of the Most High God, and he was, uh, the, it was a theophany. It was Jesus Christ. Uh, I find difficulty with this um, because obviously Melchizedek in Hebrews 7 is a type of Jesus, a type of Christ. Would Christ be a type of Christ? Seems incongruous. You know, the Passover lamb is a type of Christ. Uh, you can argue the Day of Atonement is a type of Christ. Um, there are other types, pictures, uh, illustrations of Christ in the Old Testament, but never would a theophany be a type. So that, it, it just doesn't seem reasonable to me. What is the fourth view, which I believe is the correct view that many hold to, by the way. Basically, he's a Gentile king who is a type of Jesus. So he's a Gentile king, but he's a type of Jesus. That fits better with the type, which clearly Melchizedek is in Hebrews chapter 7. So he's not a theophany, he's, he's an actual person, Gentile king, who's also a priest at this instance, who's a picture, illustration, who's a type of Jesus. Now, what, why can we come to this conclusion? Uh, number one, he's a priest of the Most High God. He was a Gentile priest, obviously. Uh, ultimately, Levitical priests uh, served Jehovah for Israel. Now, were there Levitical priests at this time in history? No. 
No, Levitical priests would come through uh, the Levites. This is, this is the time of Abram. Uh, Isaac would come, and then Jacob would come, then the tribes would come, and the Levites, and the priests. No, this is pre-Levitical priesthood. Uh, so obviously he, he had to be a, a Gentile priest, not a priest for Israel. Uh, Levitical, Levitical priests ultimately served Jehovah for Israel. Uh, but he did serve the Most High God, El Elyon, the Most High God, for all the world. Uh, in the uh, Old Testament, earlier scripture, uh, El Elyon occurs 28 times, 19 times in Psalms. The first occurrence of it is here in Genesis 14, 18. El's another name translated as God. It can be used in conjunction with other words to, to designate various aspects of God's character. Elyon, El Elyon, Elyon literally means most high. The most high God. He's over every other pretender to the throne. And it's used both adjectively and substantively throughout the Old Testament. What it expresses is the extreme sovereignty and majesty of God and his highest preeminence. He is the most high God. So when the two words are combined, El Elyon, it can be translated as it is in Psalm 57 too, as the most exalted God. So he, Melchizedek, was the priest of the Most High God. Now, he's also a king of righteousness. Psalm 85, 10, uh, before I get to... Righteousness always precedes peace. That's, that's clear in, in Scripture. Uh, many, I put down a number of verses here. Psalm 85. Mercy and truth are met together. You know, we could just talk about that for a long time. Mercy should always be shown based on truth. Not based on emotions, not based on feelings at all. But mercy and truth meet together. What also comes together? Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. You cannot have true peace without righteousness. They're inseparable. They kiss each other. Righteousness shall go before him and shall set us in the way of his steps. Righteousness is very important. Now, <clears throat> what we're going to look at, um, when you think of Melchizedek, and starting right in Right in Genesis chapter 14. I mean, where do, Genesis 12 is very important, right? You have the Abrahamic covenant, God's promises. But not too far down the road from Genesis 12, two chapters, you come to chapter 14, and we are introduced to Melchizedek, and he is a king priest. He's, he's, he's the king of Salem, and Salem means peace, but he's also the priest of the Most High God, and the name of Melchizedek is literally uh, the king of righteousness. And, and that theme, king, priest, righteousness, peace, uh, is a subject that is developed throughout the Word of God. And we'll, we'll see some of it as we go along. Proverbs 11, 4 through 6. Riches profit not in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivereth from death. 
Riches won't help you in the, in the end. Righteousness is our need. The righteousness of the perfect shall direct his way, but the wicked shall fall by his own wickedness. The righteousness of the upright shall deliver them, but transgressors shall, transgressors shall be taken in their own naughtiness. Proverbs 14, 34. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. So if we want the United States or any nation to be exalted, it needs to exhibit nationally righteousness. And, and I, we talked about this recently. I think it was here. Uh, righteousness always starts at the top. It doesn't stop at the bottom. A great example of that is Nineveh. Who led the repentance in Nineveh? The king. And it spread throughout the people. Starts, starts at the top. It doesn't start at the bottom. It's got to start with the politicians of our country, with the president and our senators and our congressmen. Ooh, we in trouble. Boy, anyway, <clears throat> you know, uh, and then it, then, it, then it moves down. So, we're going. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, righteousness exalts the nation. Sin will destroy it, in other words. Isaiah 32, 17. And the work of righteousness shall be peace. And the effect of righteousness, quietness and assurance forever. See how righteousness and peace are, are tied together? Uh, go to page 3. Isaiah 54, 14. In righteousness shalt thou be established. Thou shalt be far from oppression. For thou shalt not fear and from terror for it shall not come near thee. The answer to a nation is not a mighty military, although that might ultimately be provided by God to help defend the nation, but the answer for a nation is righteousness. The mighty powers of the past fell, even though they were stronger than anybody else around because of their sin. Isaiah 57, 20 and 21, wickedness leads to no peace. But the wicked are like the troubled sea. When it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt, there is no peace, saith my God to the wicked. You want peace? Righteousness. So there's a tie-in between righteousness and peace. Now that's very important because when we're, when we're introduced to Melchizedek, who I believe is just a Gentile king-priest, a type of ultimately Jesus, he is introduced to us as a king and as a priest, and ultimately, righteousness and peace comes out of what we understand about him. So, point number three, king of Salem, king of peace. Now, Salem did, is today Jerusalem, city of peace. Point four, Melchizedek was both a priest and a king. We've seen that. In both the Genesis 14 and the Psalm 110 passage, Melchizedek is spoken of in conjunction with the function of king and priest. Now, Psalm 110 is the Messiah, but it's the function of a king and a priest like Melchizedek was. Under the Levitical system, a priest could not be king, and vice versa. Look what Numbers 8 says, 14 through 16. Thus shalt thou separate the Levites from among the children of Israel, and the Levites shall be mine. 
And after that shall the Levites go in to do the service of the tabernacle of the congregation and shall cleanse them and offer them for an offering. For they, the Levites, are wholly given unto me from among the children of Israel. Instead of such as every open womb, uh, such as open every womb, even instead of the firstborn of all the children of Israel, have I taken them unto me. Only the Levites functioned as a priest. See, initially in Israel, the priest was to be the firstborn male of every family. God changed that. He set aside the tribe of Levi and said the Levites will be the priests. And ultimately what had to be done <clears throat> is what is referred to as Pijon Haben, redemption of the firstborn. Uh, that's done even to this very day in Jewish families. That is, the firstborn son has to be redeemed for five pieces of silver. The redemption of the firstborn. Pijan, redemption, ha, the son is ben. It's understood to be the firstborn. Today it's only a $5 bill or something that they give. But it's following through because ultimately every, first, every family's firstborn male would be the priest and would be given to God for service. God changed that and set it apart to the Levites. Messiah, though, would be both priest and king. Now, we looked at Psalm 110, but look at Zechariah 6.13. Even he, this is the Messiah, shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule upon his throne, and he shall be a priest upon his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. Now, the one being spoken of here in Zechariah 6.13, and before that, it actually says in verse 10, Behold thy the son, I think is what it says. That was quoted by Pilate. This passage is speaking of Jesus, of the Messiah. And notice what it says. He's going to build the temple of the Lord. He... Jesus ultimately will bear the glory. He, Jesus, shall sit and rule upon his throne. So if you're sitting and ruling on a throne, what are you? You're a king. And he shall be a priest upon his throne. Now that is contradictory to what God established in the offices of Israel. If you were a Levite, you were a priest. You could never be king. Kings actually came from what tribe? Judah. So if you were a Levitical priest, you could not be a king. That's why God introduced Melchizedek and a priesthood after Melchizedek. Because ultimately the Messiah would sit on the throne and rule and reign, but he would be a priest as well. And then the end of verse 13. The council of peace shall be between them both. Now, what do you think both refers to here? Yeah, the offices. See, if a king in Israel was ruling properly, righteously, under God, God's in charge, God would provide peace. Because 
What bring, would bring peace to a, to a nation? A king from the top, working down, ruling righteously. So sometimes kings in Israel would, when they were righteous, when they were godly, would do away with the idolatry and the wor worship of, of the pagans that Israelis had gotten into. But it started from the top. didn't start from the bottom. See, well, you know, what's, the, what's the cry in America today? I'm, I'm digressing a little bit. You know, we all, we all want to see our, our nation healed, right? So my people, which hear my, you know, will turn it from their wicked ways. So we say, well, if the Christians would just get right with God and pray, God would heal our land. It's not how it works. Number one, that doesn't have anything to do with us. It has to do with Israel. But number two, peace always comes through righteousness. And righteousness always starts at the top and works its way down. Look at the Assyrians. Look at Nineveh. Look at the godly kings of Israel. When they came, and God would give peace. <clears throat> Our nation today is so torn apart. It's not Donald Trump's fault. It's the fault of what? Sin. Put it in another term unrighteousness. That's why we don't have peace. That's why we have contention. That's why we have division. Because we have become a very unrighteous nation. And we will never have peace until righteousness comes from the top. And as much as I like what our president is doing in some of his policies, there's no way you claim he's a righteous man. Um, so it's not going to happen. That's why there's so much division. Because it's not starting at the top. It's not trickling down uh, to all of us. And we don't have peace. If a king, the leader of the country, is righteous under God, ultimately God will bring peace to that country. In the office of priest is how an individual gets peace with God. And so when it says here in Zechariah chapter 6, verse 13, the council of peace shall be between them both. You want peace? The king better be righteous. And you need to have a righteous priest, not, a, not an ungodly, unrighteous priest. You need to have a righteous priest. Those two offices come together in Jesus. Remember how Hebrews chapter 1 started? The very first three verses. <clears throat> Turn to Hebrews chapter 1. It's written to Jewish people. It, is, it, it couldn't have started this book in a more Jewish way. Look at verse 1. God, who at sundry times and in different ways spoken times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he appointed heir, He's getting everything. He's going to rule over everything. By whom also he made the worlds. Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. And upholding all things by the word of his power. When he had by himself purged our sins. Sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Verse 1. The beginning of verse 2 talks about the office of prophet. God in times past spoke unto us by prophets. Now the son is the prophet. Verse 2, 
He's made heir of all things. He's going to own everything. He's going to rule everything. Jesus is going to rule everything. He is going to be king over all. He will have the office of king. And then in verse 3, he purged our sins with a finality because he sat down. He is God's priest. He is the prophet, the priest, and the king. He is the anointed one of God. He is the Messiah. That's what that literally means. And what we're getting in chapter 7 now with Melchizedek uh, and Zechariah chapter 6 is that in the office of priest and king, peace comes together, both spiritually for individuals and externally for the nation or, or nations as the case might be. And he's using Melchizedek as that example. Peace comes in those two offices and will only come when Jesus ultimately comes as king. He is the priest now after the order of Melchizedek. And we can come to him and find forgiveness of sins. And one day we will have peace in this world because the righteous king will return and set up his kingdom. Now, Will Varner summarized, I think, very well back in an article in 1999 in the magazine Israel, My Glory, he said this, a more popular interpretation <clears throat> is that Melchizedek was Christ himself in some pre-incarnate form. That's a theophany. Thus, he would have been like the Old Testament angel of the Lord. And he gives some examples, Genesis 6, Exodus 3, Judges 13. Proponents of this view point to the language of Hebrews 7, 3, and we're going to look at this in more detail. Without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of day nor end of life. There are some serious problems, however, with this idea. Six times the writer of Hebrews cited Psalm 110.4. Note when stating that Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews 5.6, 6, 5.10, 6.20, 7.11, 7.17, 7.21. Six times. Um... He, Psalm 110 is quoted. <coughs> if Jesus actually was Melchizedek, <coughs> he would not be said, said to be after the order of Melchizedek. Furthermore, language of similarity, not identity, is used to describe the relationship between the two. Hebrews 7.3 states that Melchizedek was made like unto the Son of God. Not that he actually was the Son of God. Finally, Hebrews 7.15 states that Jesus is a priest after the similitude, the likeness of Melchizedek. Not that he actually was Melchizedek. These verses indicate that Melchizedek was an individual who was a type of Christ. Not that he actually was the pre incarnate Christ. Now, let's consider verses 1 and 2 again. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Now, verses 1 and 2 of this passage, we have just a reference going back to Genesis chapter 4. But what I think is very important in these two verses <coughs> is what is done in chapter, in verse 2, excuse me, where he gives an interpretation 
of him as king of righteousness and king of Salem. Now, it talks of him being the king of Salem. Where does it talk of him being the king of righteousness? In his name. The interpretation of Melchizedek is extremely important, very important. Melech, Zadok. Melech, meaning king, and Zadok, meaning righteous or just. In other words, the very name Melchizedek, Melech, Zadok, speaks of king, Melech, of righteousness, Zadok. His very name tells us he's the king of righteousness. And Hebrews brings this out. And, and, it's, and it's, it's, it's very important in this whole thing. It's a very consistent type of thing throughout the word of God. He also tells us he's the king of Salem, which is Jerusalem, meaning king of Shalom, king of peace. Peace is intrinsically tied in with the city of Jerusalem and its king. Going back to 613. When, when Jesus sits on the throne, which throne is he sitting on? The Davidic throne where? In Jerusalem. <coughs> There's an He's developing two thoughts here. King and priest. Righteousness and peace. And ultimately Jerusalem. Because the only place that peace will ever be established and its, and, and its tentacles will go out to the world is in Jerusalem. Spiritually, how would peace be established for individuals? By accepting the Lord, but what, what, what did he do for us? That we need to accept him. <coughs> he died for us. He rose from the grave for us. Did he die for us in Anger? No, well, I'm not talking about the people of Anger. I'm talking about the place of his death. <coughs> no, he didn't die in Anger. He didn't die in New York. He didn't buy, die in Boston. He didn't die in, in Rome. Where did he die? Jerusalem. It is there through his death and burial and resurrection that he established spiritual peace. That we can have it by accepting him. When the world has peace, <coughs> when is that going to take place? And where is he coming back to? To Anger? Yeah. No. <laughs> no, he's not coming to Anger. Coats. <laughs> he's going to have a coat of many colors when he comes back. Uh, no, he's coming back to Jerusalem. So maybe he'll visit Coates uh, sometime in the thousand years. Maybe that's a possibility. And when he comes back in Jerusalem and sits on the throne of David, then there's peace throughout the world. He's tying all of these things together. Peace is intrinsically tied with the city of Jerusalem and its king. So turn your page over. Look what, what scriptures just some of them says about Jerusalem. Awake, awake, put on thy strength, O Zion. Put on thy beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. Ezekiel 5.5, 5, thus saith the Lord, 
God, this is Jerusalem. I have set her in the midst of thee, uh, of the nations and countries all around her. Uh, Jerusalem is the center of the earth. That's why our tours are, tours are always journey to Jerusalem. We always end up in Jerusalem because to me that's the highlight of the tour. That's God's city. Uh, in, second, in Second Chronicles 6.6, 6, God says, I have chosen Jerusalem that my name might be there. Second Kings 21.4, the Lord has said, in Jerusalem, I will put my name. Very, very important. There's no more important city in the world. That is the place that peace emanates from. Spiritually, uh, internally, and externally. Internally being peace with God, externally being peace in the world but righteousness brings us. And so there's this tie-in between Melchizedek, the king of righteousness, who is the king of Jerusalem, of Salem, back then, who is the priest of the Most High God, but he's a picture, he's a type. He's an individual that's illustrating what Jesus would do. Then verse 3 of Hebrews. Without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abides a priest continually. A lot of people say, well, this is why it's speaking of Jesus, that it was Jesus who came in the theophany. He was Melchizedek, Jesus, who appeared to Abram because Melchizedek didn't have a father, didn't have a mother, didn't have a descent or, or a genealogy, uh, didn't have beginning of days nor end of day, uh, end of life, because he's eternal God, uh, but made like unto the Son of God. Well, if you made like unto the Son of God, I think you got a problem. If you are the Son of God, <laughs> you don't need to be made like the Son of God if you are the Son of God. But, but consider this. Um, this verse tells us that he's without father, without mother, without descent, without a genealogy. This is not the first time we find this type of terminology in the Bible. When, when, when we are confronted with Abimelech, and Abimelech is a title for a, for a pagan king. In Genesis uh, 20, and Genesis 21, and Genesis 26, we have the same type of thing. There's no genealogy. There's no record of that. The same with Sarah. We have no indication of any genealogy for Sarah prior to that. Same with Esther. Look at Esther 2.7. And he brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter. For she had neither mother nor father. And the maid was fair and beautiful, whom Mordecai, when her father and mother were dead, took for his own daughter. Now, it does say when they died, but the initial phrase, she had neither father nor mother. Have you stopped it? Well, that means she, she must be a type of, she must be Jesus who came to earth as a woman. Good-looking woman. No. It's just a, the same type of terminology that it's used here. David Cooper made this statement. It's possible, therefore, for us to construe the language concerning Melchizedek's being without in father and mother, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, as bearing the same connotation as Sarah was without a mother. Now, obviously, Sarah had a mother, just not mentioned. In Hebrews, the writer probably meant to convey to the reader 
that there was no account related to Melchizedek prior to his appearance on the stage of history. Nothing, nothing is mentioned about his father, his mother, his birthday. Neither is anything said about his death. It doesn't mean he didn't have a father, didn't have a mother, didn't have a birthday, didn't have a death day. He did. It's just not mentioned because he's a picture. He's a type of Christ is all it is saying. He's made like unto the Son of God. This suggests again that he is not the Son of God, but made like an illustration of the Son of God. He's made like the Son of God, not the Son of God is made like Melchizedek. There's a difference there. He, Melchizedek, is made like the Son of God. He's a picture. And that's why we have no genealogy. We have no birth date for him. We have no death date because he is an illustration of Jesus who is God, who had no birthday, who had no death day as the eternal creator. So he's an illustration. He's made like to the son of God, but he abides a priest continually. Now what this does, it introduces an important contrast that will be picked up in the rest of this chapter. That is, that the Melchizedekian priesthood, which Jesus is in, is an eternal priesthood, abides continually. The Levitical priesthood was temporal. Here's what Numbers 8, 23 through 25 says. <coughs> the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, This is it that belongs unto the Levites. From 25 years old and upward, they shall go in to wait upon the service of the tabernacle of the congregation. And from the age of 50 years, they shall cease waiting upon the service thereof and shall serve no more. 25, they would get ready. Actually, at 30, they would start serving. But at what age would they be through with their service? 50. It was temporal. The Melchizedekian priesthood is eternal. So what he now says, the writer of Hebrews in verse 4, <clears throat> now consider how great this man was unto even whom, unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of his spoils. Now, we are commanded to consider the greatness of Melchizedek. Abram, Abraham, gave tithes to Melchizedek. The purpose of the writing of this is logical. That the Levites and their priesthood came out of whose genealogy? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, tribal Levi. Thus, they are not as important as Melchizedek because Abraham gave tithes to Melchizedek. And I'll go on in, in the Hebrew 7 and says that they were in the loins of them, meaning that they were there, in a sense, with Abraham at that point. Well, let me quote Charles Spurgeon. <clears throat> Beloved friends, if Melchizedek was so great, how much greater is that man whom Melchizedek represents? If the type, see, he believed that Melchizedek was just a, a man, 
Gentile king, priest, who was a type and illustration of representative of Jesus. If the type is so wonderful, what must the anti-type be, the fulfillment, the real thing? I invite you to consider how great is he of whom it is written. The Lord swore and will not change his mind. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I will not say, consider how great this man was. For there is no verb in this verse here. Was is, should, be in the, it should be italicized. Wasn't in the, it's not, the verb is not there. Now consider how great this man. Consider the greatness of this man. Not was, past tense. I will not say, consider how great this man was, for there is no verb. The was is inserted in italics by the translators. We are to consider how great this man Say was, the was, say was if you will, but also read also is and shall be. Consider how great this man was and is and is to be, even the man, Christ Jesus. Now in the, in the entire article that Spurgeon wrote, on this. Consider how great this man was. And I'm paraphrasing. He stepped out of heaven, God himself, and became a man. Consider how great this man is, or was. He lived a perfect life. Consider how great this man was. He went to Calvary's cross and died for every one of us. Consider how great this man was, that he rose from the grave, that you can have eternal life. Consider how great this man is, that he ascended to heaven, and he is now our high priest after the order of Melchizedek, interceding for us before a holy God. Consider how great this man is, or will be, because he's coming back one day, and he's going to set up a kingdom on earth of righteousness and peace that we'll be part of. Consider how great this man was, is, and shall be. The focus of Hebrews 7 really the entire book of Hebrews, is to consider how great Jesus is. Not Melchizedek. He's a type. He was great in and of himself, but he's only a picture. Jesus is so much better. Consider how great Jesus is. That's the focus of Hebrews. That's the focus here. That's the focus of the rest of this chapter that we'll get into. Take that home with you. Meditate on it. Consider on it. It's not how great he was. The, the verb is not there. It's how great he was, how great he is, how great he will be, shall be. We know and serve and worship 
an amazing, amazing God. How great this man is, Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for what a wonderful introduction to chapter 7. Melchizedek was an unusual individual. Just a man, a Gentile king priest, a type, a picture. He was influential, no question about it. You didn't find king priests in Israel. He was unique. Abraham recognized that he was the priest of El Elyon, the Most High God, the one true God of the universe. How great a man he was. But he, he, he is just a shadow of Jesus. How great Jesus is. And Father, may this truth just be pounded into our hearts, our minds, our spirits, how great Jesus is. So we give you thanks and praise. <clears throat> and ask your blessings on our, our fellowship, the food. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries, thanking you for listening to our Bible study. These Jewish Awareness Podcasts are a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. If you have questions about the study that you just listened to or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org, email us at office at jewishawareness.org, or call us at 919-275-4477. Shalom.